Closing highs so far for the day. Blasting through a ceiling. In a record-setting IPO. Investors who have been riding the wave. When the stock market is booming, we're made to believe the economy is booming. But the stock market goes, so goes the wealth and the health and economy. So what exactly is the stock market measuring? Tuesday, September the 5th, Capital FM 98.4. Good evening. Welcome to a wonderful Tuesday evening for yet another captivating edition of Financial Forecast, a show that gives us and delves into matters economy and finance. Nyamburandongo, alongside Ken Gishinga, Chief Economist of Mentory Economics, you can get your weekly global roundup every Monday by subscribing to www.mentoria.co.ke. You are listening to us on 98.4 Capital FM. Catch us on our social media pages. Twitter, Facebook, our WhatsApp line is 0701-984-984. Let us know your feedback, questions that you have. Ken, hello. Hey, Nyambura. Really great to see you on this show, and I'm looking forward to a wonderful show. Yeah, we missed you last week, and a lot has been happening. Quite a bit has been happening. Uh, I mean, the streets of Nairobi are quite hectic with the climate summit, and indeed, yeah. there is much to discuss. Is there... Uh, sense of change in the air in the atmosphere <laughs> <laughs> i'm just surprised by the number of guzzlers on the road <laughs> it is a bit of money we're just saving gas and uh, transferring that to tax <laughs> we'll check on that um, so on our last show ken uh, you remember we discussed the market perception survey which is a report done by cbk and i gave you guys a bit of a breather if you're looking for a job in this economy this year, the place that you need to go is uh, the banking sector. Well, uh, to June, KCB Group, Corp Bank, and NCBA have added 1,229 jobs in the market to the period ending June. And they've opened new branches and new skill sets and changing the landscape of banking. So do you think there is hope in this economy? Well, the financial services definitely has been uh, performing the rest of the um, uh, sectors, yeah. not least because of the high interest rates uh, that have really boosted their revenues. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's good to see that that's actually translating into jobs, uh, meaningful jobs. And um, I think it's good news for especially young people who are particularly thinking about careers in financial services. You know, we've we already said Nairobi has a potential to be the international financial center of the region, and there is much potential. So it's good to see that playing out. Right, and since you talked about the youth, uh, there was a very heated discussion about TikTok the other day. I know we are going to be discussing uh, a bit of that later on (laughs) in the show, but it will be great to hear your insight. So let's uh, begin with the global market and uh, the outlook on the commodities. So the Nasdaq, FTC 100, the Dow Jones, the Nikkei, Hansen. How are they performing? How are we looking internationally? Yeah, it, the, um, they seems to be, uh, the global market seems to be quite down um, today. Um, yesterday, obviously, was uh, Labor Day uh, in the United States, really marks the end of summer. Uh, so it was not a trading uh, day. So much of the activity today was reacting to the data points that came out on Friday. 
uh, which the main one was unemployment numbers have gone mm-hmm. up. So I think a lot of uh, what's been driving the markets today was been poor data from China, uh, private sector services slowing down for at the highest space in eight months, and definitely crude oil going up. The Saudis have cut fuel about a million barrels a day. And that obviously when fuel prices go up, that has an impact on growth and stocks go down. So those are the key uh, key things. But also there's that big uh, expectation on what the Fed will do on interest rates. And I think the numbers that came out on Friday, the unemployment numbers, a lot of people believe an, an uptick in unemployment is a thing that will finally make the Fed not uh, raise interest rates. Mm-hmm. So that could be partially good news for markets. In fact, there's a 93% consensus that the next Fed meeting, there will be no rate rises. So I think that is a positive story. But again, China continues to perform poorly. Mm-hmm. Even the Chinese stocks that are listed in the United States, the Baidu's, the Alibaba, really weighing down um, some of the key stock markets. So S&P down, Dow Jones down, the Nasdaq is down. Mm-hmm. And uh, crossing over to the continent. Uh, and looking at the big five economies, uh, Egypt, South Africa, Kenya, Nigeria, Morocco, I know, of course, there's a lot that is happening in Kenya. In South Africa, we just had uh, BRICS happening two weeks ago, and uh, we'll also discuss that later. But uh, how are the markets looking? Yeah, South Africa benefited from the whole uh, limelight from BRICS. I yeah. think that was their one week in the sunshine. Uh, but <laughs> uh, right now, it's actually back to bad news. Right. Actually, uh, the rand is weaker against the dollar. But even more profoundly, they have gone back to load shedding. They've actually increased. Now we are at stage six load shedding. That's actually the highest scale of load shedding. That means about 6,000 megawatts. That's more than what we produce as a country here is being removed from the grid. So when they say uh, uh, stage five load shedding, it means 5,000 megawatts. So this is the highest. And that's down to um, a couple of generators that um, ESCOM says um, have gone down. So it's back to terrible news uh, because that, you know, South Africa is the most industrialized uh, mm-hmm. nation in Africa. So when they can't get power to do the mining, the uh, manufacturing, uh, the stock market has been down. But uh, when you look at Nigeria, it's still trying to be resilient. I think the Nigerian stocks have been resilient, um, but the macro is still very untidy. Interest rates are 24%. Uh, inflation is at 24%, interest rates at 18%. So it's not a very pro-business environment. But I think the reforms is still enge- creating some confidence amongst investors. And as you said here in the Nairobi Securities Exchange, a new indice has been, has been released, the NSE 10. Okay. And yeah, it'd be good to really unpack what's, yeah, what that is all about. Oh, I think we can just get right into it. Why do we have a new index? Yeah, this is very fresh news. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not entirely clear, okay. but um, I think it's a sense of uh, capturing the best performing stocks. So the 10 best performing stocks at Safaricom, Corp, Equity, KCB, KenGen, EABL, Kenyari, ABSA, Centum, and NCBA. Right. And I think it's there has been a conversation that almost 75% of the stock market is dominated by five stocks. Okay. So I think this, in my opinion, although I've not, I've, I've just got the information right now, is a way of, I think, showcasing uh, what the sort of like top 10 stocks look like. But we still have the 25 and the old share, so... Yeah, we have the 20, the 20, NSC 20, NSC 25, the old share. Um, 
I guess we are, you know, if you look at the American um, securities exchange, really, different um, indices tell you different things. Um, if you look at the Nasdaq, for example, it's very tech heavy. Mm-hmm. Kenya, we are not quite there yet. I think, particularly because most of our foreign, of our domestic market, stock market is dominated by foreign players. So I think it's a way of showcasing to those foreigners what so the top ten, okay. and sometimes not not to show that we're just dominated by one stock, but you actually have ten stocks that are dominating. But what concerns me is out of these ten stocks. Almost how many are local? No, not even that, but right. how many of them are just financial services? Okay. So we always talk about Kenya as being the most diversified economy in the region, in Africa. But look when you look at the NSE ten, um outside the telcos and the brewer and the power generator, they're all actually financial mm-hmm. services. So we are very financial services heavy. Mm-hmm. Uh, in this particular index. Do we have any agricultural on the list? Because, you know, it's part of our vision 2030. That's a really good question. And uh, even more importantly, agriculture is our biggest um, sector of our economy. 25% of our economy is um, tied to that. So it's not directly. Somebody might say, curiously, EABL gets its raw materials from the farms. Right. It's millet and stuff. Mm-hmm. Somebody might say it's an extension, but I don't think that's a very solid argument. You know, you want to see the the the, the, the kakuzis. Yeah, exactly. You want to see the the green companies. So it's 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 it's, it's, it's quite shocking and it tells you that Kenya is a very services driven economy. Because actually here there are actually no manufacturing companies to you talking of the telcos and banks. So it tells you and the stock market, the big, if you want to understand what drives a country's economy, look at its stock market. Mm-hmm. So if you go to Morocco, you'll find the phosphate companies that uh, provide fertilizer, all that. So it tells you Kenya is a very services, and not just services, banks and telcos. So if you're a student somewhere thinking of jobs, <laughs> this is the place you want to align, either be a data analyst in the yeah. banks or, or in the telco, an engineer, but it tells you, uh, financial services are doing very well, but yeah, it seems we are a bit lopsided. Somebody last ask, where is agriculture? It's where is manufacturing, manufacturing? And how do we bring those into giving a full picture? Because this doesn't quite give you... Capture the economy a, a, exactly. of uh, a country. Can the last uh, episode that we had, we discussed how housing is actually, I think, should be added as an indicator to the health and the how the com- our country is actually really doing because the ho- uh, the um, housing crisis in literally every downfall that we anticipate it's normally the first indicator so even looking at the NSE 10 and uh, some of those things like agriculture are really not tying in and uh, we are actually also looking into setting up our housing we are getting now into the carbon credits with the climate uh, summit that is happening. So I agree with you. The NSE 10 might not give the full picture of where we are like um, as a country. Allow me to come in here. Uh, Hello, Danny. <laughs> Welcome to Financial Forecast. Thank you. Um, the, this, whole, this, this new index that has been introduced... Would you rather it was maybe say an index introduced to deal basically with only tech or a specific playing field, for instance, if it's the financial services that you're talking about, 
that it's only an an, uh, an index for for the best performing financial institutions that is kind of sits differently from the NSE 2025 and then the all share yeah, absolutely you want to have a good indicator of the all-round um, sector of the economies so if you are to say the top index should be a capture of the best performing stocks in each index so the best performing agriculture stock the best performing banking stock the best performing manufacturing i think that would really give a really good uh, image especially to foreign investors who are the biggest participants on sort of this uh, basket. I think for me that would be quite, quite uh, a much better approach if you ask me. Okay, let's go into the commodities. So looking at the metals, uh, gold is down, silver is down, copper is down, steel is down, iron ore is up. Agriculturally, uh, coffee is down, rice is down, canola is down, palm oil is down, wheat is down, crude is up. So metals, agriculture, all down other than iron ore and crude. What is leading to the downward spiral? Well, well, I mean, I think when you look at gold, you know, gold really tracks what happens with the dollar. And the dollar has actually strengthened based on the information that I've just uh, tabled really about Chinese, uh, the China economy uh, being particularly weak. So investors flying back to the U.S., Mm. And the dollar strengthening. Anytime the dollar strengthens, uh, the gold uh, gold drops. Uh, when you look at palm oil, again, uh, there's a big activity. Palm oil is highly related to uh, the vegetable oils market. It's actually there's a big competition with other vegetable oils, and the activity right now showed palm oil has been actually losing ground. Uh, crude uh, oil, uh, exactly what I said about what the Saudis have done. They've cut back about a million uh, do- uh, barrels a day. So that will definitely put a flaw on uh, oil prices and that will actually, which is good for the OPEC countries, yeah. uh, but bad for the net oil importers, such as here in Kenya. Uh, but also the oil stocks did very, very well, the Halliburton's of this world. Um, the wheat, I think the biggest story we were really looking around wheat was the big grain purchase uh, by Egypt. A private investor mm. uh, bought uh, well about half a million tons uh, from Russia. So it just shows you how big that business is, the grain business, particularly between Russia and Egypt. Egypt is uh, the largest customer, the largest wheat customer uh, of Russian grain. Everybody in Egypt, it's, you know, I've, I've lived in Cairo and pita bread right. is actually the most common form of dish for the ordinary Egyptian. So you'd find people on bicycles, uh, carrying almost 100 stacks of pita bread and it's rounded up with goat cheese and that's actually the the key dish of the ordinary Egyptian on the street. The ordinary, you call them a mamboga mm. in Cairo. So definitely to make pita bread, that is actually wheat. So Egypt is huge and Egypt subsidizes a lot of that wheat. So I think it's interesting to see that there are private investors. These not, are not just government to government arrangements but actually private investors who have the financial muscle to get in half a million uh, tons uh, of, 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 of and actually what they're saying is they're not negotiating with the government, they're actually going straight to the millers. Mm. So it shows you the grain business is big, big business. Okay. So we had BRICS that was happening in South Africa uh, two weeks ago. 
and uh, there were key points and key takeaways. There were countries that wanted to join BRICS. They applied. There was a, a lot going on. And then uh, during the summit, they actually gave the countries that have now joined. Uh, we have um, Saudi, um, the UAE, Argentina, Egypt, Iran, Ethiopia. Would you know what was the... How are they selecting? What was the criteria for selection uh, for all these companies? And what is what really happened at BRICS? That's a really interesting question, Yambura. And in fact, you know, the thesis from that, the communique from that BRICS summit was, this was about unilateral, um, well, um, they call it multilateralism with all its inclusivity. So inclusive multilateralism, almost as a poke towards uh, the G7, which is considered to be an elite club. But the irony of it all is as 40 members applied, only six were admitted. So how inclusive um, is that? We had a really fascinating discussion on this this morning mm -hmm. at uh, Strathmore University as part of the knowledge series. Um, it's been recorded, so I'm sure the university will circulate the, the video. And the panelist was I. We had uh, Dr. Ogutu, who's the vice chancellor, uh, Martin Bayer, who's been on this show here, mm -hmm. and uh, really uh, Noah Kipkemboy moderating it. And those are the questions that people were asking. You know, do you have to be an a commodity producer to be an oil producer to mm, be to sit on the table that BRICS is admitting people? A lot of people are asking, are we moving from one colonial <laughs> model to another colonial model? So it was extremely fascinating, the question, because most of the people were participating through Zoom. It was really nice to see the various questions. And we went through many of those questions. And, you know, somebody asked, uh, a good brick needs a K. Where is the K? Where is the Kenya in BRICS? <laughs> <laughs> you know, should Kenya, essentially, should Kenya join BRICS? Um, yeah. Should we go to the gold standard, which is something that um, uh, has been sort of like talked about? So my role in that discussion was to unpack uh, what is BRICS what is? And, 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 and really to give a history of how it started. This was uh, back in early 2000. Uh, the Goldman Sachs economist, uh, Jim O'Neill, you know, came up uh, with a paper, really, and that time he was asking, which will be the most promising economies uh, in the next 50 years, by the year 2050? And people might want to ask, why did they do that paper at that particular time? And my answer to that was, interest rates were extremely low uh, in the United States. Um, the Fed chair at that point was Alan Greenspan, and he had made it very clear that nobody would made, make any money from American bonds. So if you wanted to invest invest abroad. So that's the question that Goldman Sachs was trying mm -hmm. to answer because they respond to investors' uh, needs. So which will be these big economies? So based on that paper, we had Brazil, Russia, India, and China. Obviously, these are the big population countries, right. uh, high growth at that time. And really, it, it, it evolved. It, it was only until 2006 that the finance ministers of these countries, when they went to the September uh, United Nations meetings on the sidelines started talking about, you know, this, there's something to this. Could we start talking about it? And they started talking about it. And by the time we go to 2008, this is the time we have the global financial crisis. Yep. And much of it was propelled by the West. So people are asking, wow, this can actually, we actually need an, 
an alternative mm-hmm. financial architecture. But that, even then, it was still a very loose discussion. And that's the time South Africa was joining it now to complete the whole BRICS. And it developed at that time. Funny enough, the motivations uh, of BRICS were to reform the IMF at that time. Because there was the idea that the voting power in the IMF was not proportional. So the entire BRICS at that time, which controlled about 26% of global GDP, it's much higher, about 30%. By that time, they controlled a quarter of the global GDP, only had a voting power of 15%. Uh, The United States alone had a voting power of 16%. Mm -hmm. So how could one country uh, really have more voting power than five big countries? And those are the reforms that were supposed to be taking place and they didn't take place. So this summit started happening now externally. Mm-hmm. If you don't have reforms internally, tend, these things tend to happen externally. It's attend. almost like in our political situation with Jubilee. Mm-hmm. You know, there was agitation <laughs> in Jubilee last year, the years before. But if reforms don't happen in there, people start having you reforms. You try some steel behind the tent. Mm. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. So that developed and the summits now became a frequent thing. Uh, the most important event was in... Uh, Fortaleza in Brazil when the bank, the new development bank, um, which Nyambura says is not a very innovative name, (laughs) was created, capitalized with about $100 billion. Mm -hmm. And till then, I think this year's summit of six new members has been the big story. As you said, Argentina, Egypt, Iran, India, China. Some of them have huge conflicts among themselves. You know, India and China... Right. don't see eye to eye. In fact, China has released a whole new map of the world which claims a big part of India. <laughs> you know, and then so India released a new map <laughs> which is very, very, very different. <laughs> right. Ethiopia and Egypt don't see eye to eye. Right. So one of the big questions that came today was how can it be countries that don't see eye to eye are doing business together? And my answer to that was sometimes politics and economics moves in parallel uh, paths. Sometimes they intersect. It's purely business. Uh, another time it's purely business. We talk about the US and China as rivals, but actually the largest trading relationship in the world mm. is, US is the US and China. and China. In fact, this week, they're planning to scale up flights between US and China. Mm. I think about to about um, 25 flights um, a week. So sometimes we look and I, I, I caution the crowd from just looking at things from a political lens. Okay. Sometimes look at things from an economic lens. And, and I think BRICS is actually creating more of an economic conversation than, than, than really a political one for now. So will these countries have equal voting rights within the BRICS system or is it just another replica of what you have with the G7 and then uh, people start now having thoughts around uh, developing economies that are going to be the big ones that you can you can you can mint from in 2072. Then we start forming one that has Kenya, uh, Uganda, and other people. Well, I think the intention is to be equal, but re- reality is if you look at the new development bank, the capitalization initially of 50 billion dollars. If you look at how that was spread out, Brazil, Russia, India, and China all committed about $18 billion. Then South Africa did $5 billion. Oh. So already it tells you... The voting rights as, are... As, all, as we say, we are all animals are equal, but <laughs> some animals are, are more, more equal, equal than, than others. <laughs> <laughs> so I think at the end of the day is, how much are you contributing to this bank? So if you're contributing your 1%, 
I, I don't know maybe it may be proportional to your voting rights right. to your to your shareholding because then comes in the big boys Saudi Arabia right who who really? can <laughs> I mean they can they can they can open a th- two other development banks for you guys uh, how do you decide then what their right is in this whole affair or you know based with China based with Russia and Brazil and now Argentina also comes in as a as a as a high uh, oil exporter so it's it's a bit I- different and then what's the what's the deal in 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 how they're going to trade are they going to implement a new currency for these uh, parties or are they just going to agree on how to exchange these rates Oh, that was a really good, and it really came up this morning, the issue of currency. Obviously, that was not uh, discussed in this summit. Uh, it's moved away. Uh, but Dr. Gutu gave a very good history of currencies, really looking at um, how the dollar, uh, we went from the gold standard um, to the petrodollar and, and that, and how our understanding of money uh, up to 1970 was actually money is tied to a particular commodity. It's anchored, it's backed by gold backed by silver and it's only till 1970 that the idea that uh, money is actually fiat it's backed by law actually became a reality and that's a point up to uh, Dr. Gutu took that history uh, point all I did was to add on to that and I said that discovery in 1970 that uh, money is actually backed by the law is actually not entirely new it was actually and I've said it in the past year if you look at the writings of Aristotle when they talk about nomisma, he says nomisma is a creature of the law. So even in the ancient writings, there was that idea that uh, money uh, derives its identity from the law. So it's and that's when he did the the commission of the car- former currency, a paper that was worth a thousand shillings overnight became, became worthless, worthless because it's a law that stamps authority. So I think that idea that what really gives a currency value is the law okay. and i think that is now where we are so it's 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 a bit uh disappointing that BRICS now sort of talk about going back to gold standard with that understanding um of commodity money which really is about 50 years old and then stuff so i think that really is. so when you say that the value of a currency is anchored on its law you want to ask of all these countries it's fine we talk about the united states dominating which is true but which other country in its jurisprudence in its constitution has projected itself as a beacon of justice freedom equality which of those <laughs> talk about <laughs> from a large perspective at, or from reality uh, yeah, even, even from even even an attempt look at south africa and brazil those are the possibly the two most unequal societies when you talk about the gini coefficients correct look about china and russia they have so much domestically Whether look at argentina <laughs> look at argentina so my point was really it's they're asking a fundamental question that it's it's important that the world's financial architecture is not dominated by one uh, country that's a very important just even from a risk management perspective yeah. we need to have more swifts more payment systems but on the flip side none of these countries are coming out to be the beacon of of transparency and uh hope hope and light, and light. <laughs> yeah so we can try and sort of poke holes at america at its pedestal but nobody's coming up to say you know we want to be the beacon of 
life, liberty, and the pursuit of... And that's possibly, that's the reason um, that new currency thinking actually is sort of like fading away very quickly. Ken, let me take you back um, and ask the most very basic of questions. And uh, I might be asking for quite a number of people. What is BRICS? Like, what is it? And what is its importance to Africa and to... not? Africa and also to the world like um, break it down is it like echo us or how how do we benefit or how do the people within that benefit no that's a very powerful question and I think uh, it's on a lot of people's minds uh, basically if you look at the world post World War II uh, this is when in the 1945s um, the world is rebuilding itself and the key agent and driver of rebuilding is the IMF, the World Bank, uh, what was called the Reconstruction Bank, and really uh, being uh, the drivers of 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 of, of transformation. Um, and based on that foundation, much of what has happened since World War II, with the formation of the UN, it's had significant input from the United States and what you call the G7, mm-hmm. which has worked, has has had its benefits. I think America has contributed great to globalization. The problem people are asking is, well, well done, America. You've really built a global economy in which people can trade with confidence. But what is the risk of if you disagree with the United States like Russia and you're thrown out of SWIFT? <laughs> what would happen? So even people who don't, uh, back the Russian war, people found that very curious. It's a risk. It's a risk. It's if you look at risky. Uganda right now, it's not seeing eye to eye with the World Bank on some of the legislation. So what happens to yeah. that? So there's that feeling that even from a risk perspective, America is doing an excellent job. But what if something happens? You're putting and your eggs in one basket. Exactly. So I think people is it's not even an anti-American thing. It's just a risk management. The way we say, you know, really, I love my M-Pesa. I use M-Pesa every day. But there's always that question in everybody's mind. What if one day, if it doesn't work, <laughs> you know, will will there be any other platform? So I think just more from a risk management, uh, people are saying, you know, we need more payment systems. What if Even the electricity when the, goes down? The new development bank, if you really look at its motto, it was saying to collaborate with the World Bank mm. and to IMF, to collaborate. That's the language, to mm. cooperate, maybe to address issues of the global south. So this whole notion that it's, one or the other. And I said, I, I see a future where countries will be members of BRICS and the IMF and the World Bank, okay. pretty much. We are moving towards a multipolar world. And I think that's the conversation that BRICS began. What does that new multipolar world look at? Who are the members? Who are the drivers? Obviously, China mm-hmm. is a big driver. I mean, the location of the New Development Bank was contentious, but eventually it yeah, landed in Shanghai <laughs> at the end of the day. So it tells you China is the biggest uh, player. So back to your question, Danny, are, they, are we all equal in mm. these new bricks? Mm. You know, you know, Kenya is the size of one state. <laughs> so, so we have all countries are fair in dignity. Mm. Uh, but you're right, in terms of logistics and decision-making, sometimes it may be a bit different. So I think that's really the motivation of mm-hmm. BRICS, just an agitation of asking, can we have more? It's not really saying the West has done badly, okay. but can we have more? So in case that we want a different arrangement, mm-hmm. with that. so what does it mean for Africa? I think it means also de- 
colonizing our minds, just stopping to think solutions can only be found in the West. In the West okay. And asked, if I'm a farmer in Kenya, what can I learn from Belarus. Brazil? Mm-hmm. You know, Brazil. <laughs> uh, so those are the questions that I think that people should uh, unpack. You know, Argentina, people always think of Argentina as a country that defaults on its debt. Mm-hmm. One thing that people don't know about Argentina, it's, it's a hotbed for fintech. Yeah, major fintech companies coming in Buenos Aires okay. and stuff. So it's supposed to also help people think there's more besides what we'll get in London and New York. Right. There's uh, China, there's Fortaleza, there's Buenos Aires. These, these are countries that can be markets for our products. We can sell our tea to Brazil. We can import our tractors right. from Brazil. So I think those are, I think BRICS is supposed to open the imagination okay. and we don't need to have an external currency. We can, if I wanted to buy uh, my tractors from Brazil, I should be able to have between shillings and real okay. a good exchange rate. Those are the conversations okay. that are starting to come up in these discussions. And I think it's it's healthy, it's exciting because it's involving uh, more countries. Absolutely. Ah, you've put it very well, Ken. Um, because BRICS is now going to be controlling 30, 30% of the global economy and 46% of the world's uh, population. So I think that now puts things in perspective. We now understand why it was necessary in the first place because we are thinking the G7 and all these summits are there and all these um, um, com- countries coming together to deliberate, but we do not get the economic benefit out of all these um, meetings that they normally have. So let's come closer home. And um, we have... Uh, President Ruto today, no, on the 1st of September actually, uh, he signed into law the Climate Change Amendment Bill, which has now set uh, the stage for regulation of carbon markets. And I know in one of your previous um, editions on financial forecast, you actually really did tackle carbon credits. I had absolutely very many questions about it. Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this, but I found it a bit redundant. as to why you're giving somebody an allowance uh, to pollute. Pollute. Uh, Just just because I'm not polluting does not mean that you have my permission to (laughs) pollute on my behalf. But uh, what is um, the next uh, step for this? And if uh, you want to catch up on that episode that um, Financial Forecast was uh, focusing on carbon credits, you can find it on our SoundCloud page, Capital FM and any other place you get your sound, uh, your podcasts. So cannot add the next steps. Um. Yeah, I think there's some really interesting developments that are happening today, and uh, obviously some will come in tomorrow. Uh, and it really is the issue that Africa contributes at least um, to climate change, uh, but faces the effects the most. And typically in this camps, there are two broad narratives that are coming out. I think the number one is the issue of reparations, you know, how do we organize reparations? You know, somebody today was asking me, how does somebody in New York measure how much contribution they are making to make my life into Rukana worse? How do you even measure that? <laughs> That's a broad it's thing. Very it's, abstract, it's a very actually, abstract yeah. thing. Uh, but I think the more progressive narrative is uh, people who are looking to make um, an impact on the climate and are look for, looking for business models yeah. uh, that can be more uh, climate-friendly, Africa is a place to be. 
So you want to come to Africa. If you think about our natural grid, energy grid, the president said, you know, we are going to expand that grid and it's going to be almost 90%, if not 100% by the year 2040. So I think that's the more attractive narrative. Uh, but not to say the reparations thing is, is, is light, but as you say, the mechanics, the calculations, there's a whole school uh, that pursues that. But the whole, the whole idea of pursuing uh, business models that are good for the environment. And we've seen the clean energy buses right. coming up, uh, energy, uh, the solar uh, the solar power uh, techniques that are coming up. So I think those are the two narratives that will depend. But, you know, from a government perspective, there's a feeling that there's money that we are leaving at the table. Whether it's, you know, if you look at what Brazil, the Amazon mm-hmm. really gets in terms of carbon, um, right. carbon credits, there's money that we are leaving at the table. And mm-hmm. can we build sophistication to get that money? Um, if you look at the agents that conserve our air and our water, the forest agencies, the wildlife agencies, they could be losing revenue for the good work mm, they're doing. Okay. So the question is, how do you build models, uh, revenue models, uh, that, uh, uh, that are not getting in the way of doing business, but are really also rewarding the people who are contributing okay. um, to that cleanness. So the narratives that are coming up, but of course we wait for the final communique final. Uh, that will come really on the last day of the summit, and I think uh, that will give us a bit more insight. But I, Ken, I'm still struggling with this in the sense that what we are trying to say is welcome to Kenya. We have very good energy and it's clean. 90% of it is geothermal or wind, solar, whatever. And because our energy is so good, which means we have not polluted at all, now we'll give you permission to come pollute on our behalf, right? I mean, it's counterproductive if we want to look at it in that sense. If we are generating 90% clean energy, then we cannot be inviting or introducing carbon markets so that then we can have investments coming in to pollute our <laughs> to pollute our environment just because we have clean energy. Does it really make sense? Now I can see where you're coming from, Dan. And actually in economics, there are two big branches. There's what you call the public goods economics and private goods economics. Uh, what we discuss on a day-to-day basis is the private goods economics. You now buying your car, your laptop, private goods. When it gets to public goods, this is about... Uh, Public goods are like security. Um, um, when you put up a barrier in your mm-hmm. estate at the gate, but not everybody pays a subscription for the right. front as carry. Uh-huh. Some people are free riding. That they refuse to pay. They refuse. That's why it's called the free riding effect, and you see it in in, in every estate. So you're enjoying a public good of, of of it. So public good economics is very complex. Um, I've done one assignment on that. It's very different. Uh, and you're right, when you apply private goods economics, which is what they are applying, uh, making markets, okay. really making markets out of carbon, uh, sometimes it leaves a sour t- flavor in the mouth, really, a sour taste in the mouth, because you actually get where Nyambori is asking, you know, I'm doing my best part to keep my part clean now, but I'm, low. now I'm giving now you permission, I'm giving permission to <laughs> pollute for me. Right. So I think for me, we need to develop public goods economics. This is about security, fresh air. Uh, climate, who should pay for these things? Because everybody enjoys uh, parks. How do you put, uh, how do you price the entry for a national park? How do you price it well? You know, um, and to make sure that you're comfortable. So I think it's it's an area that is often forgotten. 
the models are there. I've seen some of the models, but I don't know they've been neglected. So I think what the market has gone to is the private, how the private market works, and it's about supply and demand. But you apply that, you end up with outcomes like what we just had of, you know, mm. it leaves things that are sometimes don't make entire lot of sense. People, it takes time for people to process where I'm giving you rights uh, to, to do so. Nice. Because I'm, I'm assuming if we did a, if we did a dipstick of the last two days so far, it ends tomorrow or Thursday. Sorry, y- yeah, tomorrow or Thursday. The amount of pollution that would have happened in this sense around the Africa Climate Summit as compared to what it was before the event began and after is going to be ridiculous, you know. There is a lot of flights coming in, shipping in 100,000 people coming in for this summit. So our air already in JKIA, maybe that's where they need to start the carbon markets from. And then... yeah, but I, I understand what you mean. It's just that it kind of it becomes contradictory if you're trying to, to, to save the, the climate so you introduce carbon markets. I, I don't think that really... <laughs> I think, Danny, what we traded in was uh, we traded in our, cap- our carbon footprints and then we got in money because I think there's quite a bit of injection in terms of cash that has really come in through the climate summit uh, because... Uh, I mean, our hotels for sure, are for sure, absolutely full. Um, Airbnbs, the food is happening. Um, I was discussing with somebody who was at the summit today, and they're like, the place around KCC and the environs, all the hotels are like packed, and uh, people have to eat. So I guess we can say that was a fair trade, can? And I like the sound of that. <laughs> I think I, nothing turns one man on like money. <laughs> so be man, be man, be government. We I think we're all aiming for the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> one of the key interesting points that came up earlier this morning when you talk about uh, the private businesses that benefit, right. whether it's a climate summit in Nairobi or a BRIC summit BRICS in, in Santon. And uh, Martin raised a very, very practical point about the local companies that we intend as. You know, we intend us to do events. <laughs> we intend us to provide this. So it's, it brought us back to all that. It's actually money that exchanges uh, hands in these events as a, from a, a very practical business right. um, environment. Our transport industry is booming. I'm sure the local uh, taxi providers are really doing the most. Uh, I'm hoping they're also <laughs> saving energy. So... Inflation and household uh, spending. There was another survey that was done by CBK, I think, uh, and the National Bureau of Statistics uh, on the financial sector and uh, deepening, FSD. And it showed that uh, every 10 SMEs defaulted on their loans uh, to about June. So 60.7%, they defaulted... uh, on their loans, and that is the MS, MSEs. Uh, looking closer now to the individual, um, they say that um, 62.3% of the rate of default was high among the female-owned businesses, and um, <laughs> 55% of the, uh, and the rest, 45%, was uh, based on the males. So looking at um, the economy and how you normally call it 
down to the people when you're talking about the microeconomics. We see that people, we are still struggling and we are defaulting on loans um, and I might sound biased when I say this, but they say uh, females are much better at uh, <laughs> somehow borrowing managing and, <laughs> and managing. So they say that if at all that indicator by itself is showing there's a struggle in the economy, what is, where are we heading? No, indeed, uh, Nyambura, there is a struggle. Um, there is a feeling that uh, things are too tight. And this has been brought by what I call the three levels of tightening. Uh, really on the fiscal side, the new taxes coming in, uh, making the cost of uh, ordinary goods um, go up. Uh, there's also monetary tightening where you saw banks' interest rates really going up, hitting almost 19%. Uh, but what I also emphasize a lot is household spendings. Really households, these are middle class households that um, have the savings, have not really been affected by COVID or elections. They have the savings but they are not they are very uh, uncertain about the future so they choose not to to spend and actually that's a really really destructive part cause much of our spending uh, as we talked about we talked about the issue of Gini coefficient is actually done by the middle and the middle upper the wealthy and the middle up almost the top quintile is where actually that drives almost 40% of our spending so if that segment the top segment is not spending uh, and I saw a curious statement on car sales, where they're talking about uh, uh, the inch cap dealership. The BMW has only sold three BMWs down from 12. The oh. Range Rover uh, sold three down from 15. It shows it's almost like a 38, 37% uh, drop in consumer spending. And when the luxury elite, the wealthy, uh, don't spend, even that trickle-down effect you know, doesn't um, come um, to the ordinary people. So... Uh, it, picked, it paints a picture of uh, a society where liquidity is very tight, interest rates are very high, and those interest rates are really mopping up uh, quite, uh, when you have T-bills at 14%, it means it's really mopping up any money that would be moving um, across the economy. So that is not surprising, it's leading to defaults. Uh, why there's a higher default among um, female all businesses. I think that's an interesting point for research. Uh, possibly it could be sectors. There could be some sectors where uh, more women participate in and those sectors tend to be like I know real estate has been really, really hit hard. Mm-hmm. And a lot of female owned charmers have really gone into real estate. So possibly it could be just a choice of sectors. I don't think it really speaks to uh, individuals per se. Yeah, yeah, I think it really speaks to the sectors that maybe there's a more concentration mm-hmm. of one gender than, than, than the other. But by all means, um, it, it's not an easy time for um, um, SMEs, uh, but also, also for the corporates also. Um, and in terms of inflation, uh, there was a report that said that um, the cost of living in August was much better than previously. Is it because of the rains? Um, would you know what led to that um, increment? Uh, what spiked it? Yeah, actually, it came down uh, f- to 6.7, down from 7.3. I saw those are big up on social media. People are saying, oh, these numbers are not representing the reality. And I think I think it's also our understanding of inflation. Mm. You know, a lot of people uh, believe when inflation has gone down, it means the prices have gone down. Inflation is a measure of how fast prices are rising. So it means the prices are rising, but, but at a slower at a slower rate. And we saw a lot of the items. I think outside of sugar and mangoes really almost everything was slowing down and 
you know the issues about inflation that people say does it really capture the reality of the Kenyan does, does it <laughs> does it really <laughs> capture and I think that's where I think that's where the tough part uh, we need to reimagine our inflation because yeah. um, you know it's anchored on the household survey that was done in 2016 wow. um, so there somebody might ask uh, how how similar is my life now compared to 2016 I can and 2016 was expensive. before covid yeah. 2016 we didn't even do all these things like zoom or working from home mm-hmm. how similar so that's one argument number two the inflation data we get actually comes from 13 urban areas so people ask what about the, all the other kenyans in the mm-hmm. rest of the country they are not captured uh and number three is the issue of the substitution effect that you know people can actually change habits so mm-hmm. nobody consumes a basket of goods you can change if something if salary changes yeah. you can change that. so i think it's like the top three reasons people have to sort of doubt okay. um the figures uh yeah to just say can we we, we need to rethink really um in in inflation how we calculate inflation so that it really speaks um to our reality talking of substitution um you know, I absolutely love circles. I, I always advise my people. <laughs> circles are meant to be your best friend. Uh, so there was the Sasra report that uh, was also um, came out, and they said, as Martin had quoted earlier in the show, that broke Kenyans have withdrawn 30.8 billion worth of their savings. Uh, for the year 2022, though, uh, it's not for this current year. I'm thinking now with the new taxes and the next thing that we're meant to be discussing is the new taxes. This year is probably going to be worse. Uh, would you have a bit of insight as to what was leading that, why it was not the same in 2020? I mean, that's when everything had shut down. 2021 would have expected um, that scenario to happen between 2020 and 2021. But 2022... My opinion was fairly okay. Well, I think a number of things happened. Uh, in 2021, uh, there were those government measures, the tax measures that the government put in place to cushion mm. Kenyans. Remember yes, yes, on yes. the payee, on uh, VAT, on you know. some items. Mm-hmm. Some people were exempt. Yes. So I think that really helped um, to cushion people. Yeah. Uh, but once we started getting into 2022, all those measures were mm-hmm. rolled yeah. back. Yeah. Uh, but people were still not told not to stay at home. So on the w- on the right hand, you're being told COVID has ended, uh, pay your loans, all these things. Yeah. But on the left hand, you can't go to work. Yes. You still wear your masks wow. and, and, and that. So I think that was the issue. But I think even more profoundly oh, was... the moratorium. The CBK moratorium. Yes, yes absolutely. Mm-hmm. But I think even more profoundly was the issue, the expectation that COVID would be possibly like a three month, six oh. months. So you find in 2020, despite people not working, mm-hmm. people had savings. Okay. So people were deploying those savings saying this is a three month six months getting into 21 now it's becoming a one-year thing we still have savings but as we get into 2022 all the savings have been depleted we are heading into an election (laughs) so everybody is postponing decision the typical kenyan thing of saying let's talk after elections so you're you're facing a really tough situation of where you've depleted your savings you've not worked for two years you're heading into an election a very very emotive um, elections when nothing is actually moving because it was tightly contested. Uh, and I think that's why 2023 has been tough because a lot of people mm. are expecting COVID is behind us. 
uh, elections are behind us so this no, is the year of recovery but you know taxes. all these other issues <laughs> <laughs> came up and taxes hit come, so you actually have a situation of people who for the last four years really since 2019 have never really had their house <laughs> in order we are just using our savings <laughs> literally somebody else yeah. so ironically uh, the circle savings have gone up by 9.84% to 629.49 billion in 2022 compared to 564.89 billion in 2021. With all the deductions? With all the deductions. I think uh, people are listening. Now they are going to the circles. Um, because I think when COVID hit and the interest rates and all these things happened, um, I don't know. I'm just speculating. Maybe you have more insight as to what has spiked the growth in the savings culture. Savings. Well, one uh, very interesting phrase that you always give is you say savings is a private virtue, but a public vice. <laughs> when you see mass savings, it tells you a couple of things. Mm -hmm. People are not finding investment opportunities. Uh, people are worried about almost like in elect actually during elections period savings really go up because nobody too. wants to I'm everybody changing. postpones right if i need to buy a car if i need to buy a house i postpone so you find the savings really grow up mm. and that's why it can be really uh both ways it can be a, a, a i would say a public <laughs> vice while it's a private virtue uh that said i uh, i'm not surprised you know when interest rates are very high um people often ask um, should I just keep my money in the money market and mm. enjoy, or in the bonds and enjoy 14% yep. risk-free? Why should I put up um, mm, apartments, uh, deal with uh, caretakers and tenants and all these things? Electricity. Electricity. When I can get and get 10% with all that uh, challenges, mm. when I can get 14% risk-free. So I think also the interest rates uh, tend to crowd out. Uh, the private sector. Okay. Uh, when interest rates are high, people just put their money um, in savings, in bills and in bonds. So it's really up to the government to really bring down interest rates. So even banks start lending um, to the real economy. Otherwise, you can really end up with an economy where everybody's just throwing the money at these things. And they were saying that what has led to the distribution between how the growth has been, and there were two interesting words that they were using, the BOSA should it be BOSA and FOSA? Indicators, <laughs> 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 what is that? <laughs> well, BOSA stands for back office um, services activities okay. and uh, really requires to, here a member makes a prescribed minimum contribution every month. The money can be used as a collateral for loans, which oh, you borrow about four, four times. FOSA is the opposite, is really the front office um, okay. savings activities, and this is money that can be over withdrawn um, over the counter. Oh, okay, okay. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Now into the one problem that we really have, Ken. Uh, we have we have taxes, we have new taxes, and um, digital asset taxes now in effect. And now we're also being told we can't uh, getting second-hand vehicles now is going to be also much of a problem in the economy of people who have withdrawn thirty point eight billion from their savings. Again, <laughs> <laughs> I, th well, I, th I think the digital services tax—that's the one that I think has really rubbed. You know, all these young content creators, right. all these young people 
first of all, people ask, what is a digital asset? What is it? You know, and the description How am I uh, eligible to pay it? How would I know when I'm meant to pay it? Not even when you're meant to pay it, but what exactly Exactly. is it? And the definition that's given is anything that's not tangible. See, that could be so many things. It's so broad. It's so broad. And uh, so that really has, uh, you know, content creators are worried, you know, if you think of somebody who's like you know like a fitness influencer, mm-hmm. really uh, trying to uh, create content on fitness and working in a gym, and you know if you're earning below twenty-four thousand shillings, ideally you should not be taxed. Right. But now you have the digital aspects coming. So as a fitness influencer, uh, you ask, is my money coming from uh, really my coaching in the gym, mm-hmm. or is it from my influencing? Videos, so it creates all these gray arenas that it is very gray. it's 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 actually very confusing. And even more than that, you know, a lot of people in this content creators world, these are people who maybe have not gotten the opportunities in the formal world, you know, in the, the in in the government offices, in right. the corporate offices. So uh-huh. they're really trying to uh, make a buck outside there. But you're going for that. So I feel like it's too soon. I wish they would have given the industry more time to mature, right. to be regulated, to have structures then come for it in an, in an interesting way because I think this might just add to the cost of living really and the cost of doing business which is the main sort of uh, thing that helps them put food on the table. So do you see it being an argument for all capital gains just have to be taxed or what's, what's the idea around introducing all these taxes to even people who might just be making that little buck that keeps them surviving and it's not even within the threshold of what should be taxed. Well, we've never really had a clear tax policy. I know Treasury keeps saying they have a draft that's been doing the rounds, but there's never been a deep, broad understanding of our tax policy. So we are left to the devices of saying, okay, all our revenue generating measures are to help us get revenue so we can pay the euro bond. So we can pay taxes, you know. So it's a very closed, myopic approach. And I think it's time we talked about what's a progressive tax laws. What are regressive tax laws? Mm-hmm. Are we going to slap VAT on everything? Is that the progressive way? Or does it just make the cost of... We've never had that conversation as a society. And I think it's hopefully this administration would create the avenues, you know, in, in the philosophy of the bottom-up. What do people at the bottom really think? Because consumption taxes tend to hurt the people at the bottom the most. So you don't have a job, but you have to buy your phone at an extra cost, despite not having a job. So people talk about progressive tax laws, and that's, I think, the area that we need to really, as a country, really think about. Uh, talking of tax, can you know, every time uh, you're called to court because you have failed to pay uh, tax by the taxman, there's always um, an issue of um, interpretation of the tax. So in this digital asset tax, who is meant to give the interpretation? Well, they have provided, as I said, a general interpretation. It's, it's absolutely very general. Uh, um, whether it means tokens or fungible um, NFTs, it's, 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 you know, I wonder, our reports, are they digital assets? I was just <laughs> thinking out loud, you know. So it's, 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 it's really, I think it's an area where, uh, and I wish the it digital society inside. had sort of like an umbrella body okay. for digital players that engage KRA, Treasury to really, 
uh, discuss. I think all the content creators, maybe there is, I've not heard of it, but there needs to be some digital, almost like what Kepsa does for corporates, but okay. a body that really speaks to digital players so that if there is any publication, there are the people who read through it, engage, show uh, the government why this might be. I've not seen that. Maybe it does exist, but I think that is really needed. Well, thank you, Ken. Thank you, Danny. Pleasure is always mine. I guess um, brings us to the end of another episode of Financial Forecast. Any questions, any feedback that you have, uh, remember to catch us on our WhatsApp line 0701-94984. You can catch us on Twitter at our page at Capital FM Kenya. You can catch up on this and every other latest episode as well as, um, you know, any other podcast and anything that you really want to hear on Capital FM SoundCloud page. And anywhere you get your podcasts from, enjoy your week and blessed evening.